and welcome to Real Estate Insights, the podcast series from Savills that finds its way into every corner of the property world and gets at the real stories behind the property headlines. Today we're donning our wellies and barber, other brands of wax jacket are available, and heading out into the fields to take a look at Savills' annual report on the farmland market. I'm Guy Ruddle, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast Emily Norton, Savile's Head of Rural Research. How are you, Emily? I'm very well, thank you very much. So last time we spoke was when you were on the Cross Sector Predictions podcast earlier this month. You and I both had pretty heavy colds then. Are you better now? Winter flu is a terrible thing. I'm feeling much better, thank you. Great stuff. And also with us is Charlie Dudgeon, Head of Savile's UK Rural Agency. Hello, Charlie. How are you? Hi there. Good, good to be here. So a few days ago, we were recording a ski podcast uh, for Savills with Jeremy Rollison, who almost admitted he spends most of the winter just skiing. Do you spend most of your time, winter and summer, on the farm or on on farms? To be honest, as much as I can. I mean, probably doing 25,000 miles a year in the car and um, God knows how many in an aeroplane. But it's, it's, it's a tremendous way of getting around, meeting your clients and finding out really what's going on, not sitting in the ivory tower waiting for the phone to ring. Fantastic. God, sounds like a great job, Emily. I think we're in the wrong business. Uh, now, we're going to start by teeing up a thing called the Savile Standout Statistic. Now, you may, well, Emily, you know all about this because you were here last time we did one. But, but Charlie, the idea here is that I, but at the end of this conversation in 10 or 15 minutes time, I'm going to ask you for a statistic, a little nugget of information that, uh, that you think surprising or interesting or, or elucidates the market in some way that other people may not know. You're right. You're ready, you're ready yes, for that? Yep. Excellent. And Emily, it's going to be a hard job for you because you came up with an absolute corker last time on the Cross Sector podcast. You told us, I think I've got this right, that in the 1940s, about 650,000 acres of farmland were traded each year at a price of about £50 an acre. And that nowadays, that's gone down to 100,000 acres a year traded, so less than a sixth, but at a price of up to £10,000 an acre. And in fact, our research that we are going to be talking about today looks at how those values have been changing in greater detail. Yeah. But in 2018, that was a pretty decent year in terms of the amount of, of, of land being, being bought and sold, isn't it? Actually, we saw a substantial increase in the amount of land marketed uh, for the first time in many years. So um, I can't give away my killer stat, though. I've got to save it for the end. Oh, OK. All right. Um, Charlie, is there a reason, specific reason why 2018 was, was a good year in terms of volumes? And is it likely to be repeated, do you think? Well, we've just come through probably 20 years of fairly tight volumes. Um, and for 2018, the market's probably at 10 past 12, with a peak being in 2015 in average terms. Um, and some people are taking a view that for them going forward, it's not for them. Others are saying, we want to stay in, we've got family following on, and we need to get bigger. Yeah. And in terms of prices, is it, is it possible to sort of generalise across the market, or is it really fragmented? A very good point. Uh, our research friends like to give an average stat for the price per acre. Um, in our world, there's no such thing. And let me give you an example. If you take a, um, a typical block of land, grade three land, um, which is about middle of the road, arable ground across the whole of the UK, um, it can range in price from, say, £5,000 an acre to £14,000 an acre. So in reply, what is the price of land? You have to put it in context as to where it is, what it is and what it's surrounded by and who, who is the likely buyer to see what the actual price is. 
And we've certainly seen that level of diversity becoming a, a predominant feature within the industry um, and understanding those dynamics much more. Um, technology enables us to do that, to, to track those trends, to see who local buyers are, see who local sellers are and understand much more the supply and demand dynamic within the market. So so what makes a, a good, this is probably a ridiculously simplistic question, but what makes a good farm to sell? A good farm to sell? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Again, if you aim at, there's two markets I'll talk about, okay? There's one, there's the commercial farmland market. And if you're a commercial farmer, and we'll stick to arable because it's more simple, if you're a commercial farmer, um, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, or go, going back to the stat, stat that Emily had there at 650,000 acres, um, you could probably make a profit of 150 acres employing two men and turn a very good return for yourself. Today, anything below 500 acres of arable is deemed deemed to be unviable if it's purely arable cropping. And most arable farmers are looking to try and farm, whether it's owned or occupied, that can be owned outright or occupied by terms of contract or lease, um, an acreage in excess of 1,000 acres. And the, mm-hmm. the driver, therefore, for the arable farmer is more acres. The ideal farm for us is one that has a ring fence, so there's no other third parties have any other interest in it whatsoever. So it's private to all intents and purposes. Um, it's fixed equipment in terms of buildings is good and in good condition, not requiring investment for the next 20 years. It's serviced by, we would love to say, a Georgian farmhouse. But actually, nowadays, all the farmer wants is a house. He doesn't want too much money wrapped up in the house. Um, and it, it has land of a quality that can grow the full range of arable crops. And I, for that, I mean wheat, barley, oats. Um, but also vegetables and certainly potatoes. And if there's access to water, because that seems to be more of a shortage nowadays, especially down in this part of the world, um, then that's an advantage. So, Emily, the only thing that Charlie hasn't talked about there is it. Well, it's interesting that Charlie's completely focused on the the quality of the farming of that land. I, when I, if I when I travel around the place, I. I, I come across more and more farms that are doing more than just farming you know they've turned some of their buildings into offices or or whatever and that sort of diversification is it am i imagining that or is that really happening no you're actually very good at this property thing guy you're doing very well Uh, so what we find across our research work is that the um, more diversified the um, farm is, the estate is, the more resilient it is to um, returns from one particular sector. So notoriously, returns from agriculture tend to be quite volatile. They might be very good one year, might be very poor the next year. And so maintaining an, a, a diversified range of property assets across the estate is, is the best way to guarantee lo- long-term financial resilience. But it's not just financial resilience, it's also issues around environmental schemes and environmental payments uh, and uh, work that's put into investing in in the broader environment and then also um, interesting things around sort of social well-being as well and how how farmers interact with their community what kind of services they can provide so we look across the whole piece. I I totally buy that except there is a section in the marketplace and we say there's 195,000 farms in, in the UK there is a section of that marketplace that is totally driven by wanting to farm and farm only and that's what's driving the search for scale. I totally buy then there's another sector who are saying my size of farm may not be viable in the future because of scale, but it may have all the advantages Emily's just said of um, being able to diversify into letting buildings, certainly renewables, any farm now that has some form of renewable energy income, whether it be solar panels 
or wind turbine going up um, or any form of hydro, certainly we have up in Scotland and parts of Wales, um, is an absolute bonus when you come to offering it to the market because that is the income that they're trying to offset the loss of, of um, uh, uh, entitlements for subsidy. Yes, because that's a big thing, isn't it? You know, the basic payment system or scheme, is it called the basic payment scheme? See, I'm not that good. I don't know everything. The basic payment scheme is supposed to be with Brexit. <clears throat> let's let's try and avoid Brexit. But the, that's, going to, that's supposed to be fading away over time. There's more environmental stuff that farms are going to have to do left, right and centre. Climate's changing, etc., etc., etc. I mean, you could argue, you could look at this and say, who would be a farmer? Well, well let's be clear first, sorry, sorry, on the BPS, Basic Payment Scheme, in England, we know that is going to be tailed off by 2027. And there will be, we're told, some environmental payments coming in, in instead. We don't know too much detail about that yet. In Scotland, we know nothing yet. We haven't been told exactly what's going to happen in any way, shape or form. So people are stabbing in the dark and we don't know what's going to go forward for subsidies. Who is buying and who is selling at the moment? So in in the buying side, we've we've covered the farming market. There are farmers out there wishing to get bigger. Um, And how much of the buying is 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 farmers? 50% 50 of buyers are farmers. Right. 50% are non-farmers, either looking to get into farming in a lifestyle fashion, so loving to know they can grow certain types of crops. It's a nice place to live. They want to get out of London, get out of Birmingham, get out of Edinburgh, um, out into the fresh air. That really is becoming something people are asking about now, is fresh air, woods, privacy, um, getting into different styles of state school or private school. That's a real driver. And I would say in the last three years, the increase in lifestyle buyers as the commercial market has turned to come away from from peak market um, has increased probably by about 30%. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is that your understanding as well? Absolutely. The um, range of um, interests in owning something unique, which uh, British farmland will always be unique. The view is always unique to wherever you are. The cultural heritage, the property is always unique to wherever you are. Uh, it's not a replicable asset. So there's still that sort of prestige factor around many of the farms uh, and estates um, that we have here that will drive levels of interest um, in, in owning that property. And the UK remains an, a, a good destination for inward investment from overseas. So they're, they're, they're still attracting in overseas money. And if you look at that in specifics, if you look at Scotland, because that's very close to my heart. Um, Is it, Charlie? <laughs> you surprised me. <laughs> Funny that. Um, 50% of the interest in farmland in Scotland comes from south of the border or abroad. Come to the UK, England and Wales, perhaps, um, 50% of the interest is farming interest and 50% is lifestyle interest. And that lifestyle interest may include purchasers or viewers from further afield in, in Europe um, and the Far East. Can we have a quick word about forestry? Because in, in the report, uh, there's, a, there's a table which talks about the returns you can get in, from different types of things, including arable farming, including commercial property and direct res- equities, all sorts of things. Forestry does amazingly well uh, in that. W- what's going on there, Emily? Forestry prices have increased dramatically over the last couple of years. Um, I think this report talks about 43%, but an in- increase in returns from timber. 
Um, but I think the most recent figures, which haven't been published yet, show that it might even be higher. Um, we are currently compiling, compiling our most recent results on, on the forestry market and how that's changing. But there, again, are a variety of reasons why people are investing in forestry. But fundamentally, uh, demand for um, carbon, demand for energy, demand for resources from timber are increasing and remaining high. So whilst there is a tension between the supply um, and the demand for that product, prices will be increasing. And the very fact, if you look at the hard um, product, the timber product, Britain imports still over 70% of its timber um, from, from abroad. And therefore, the opportunity to be, to be moved towards self-sufficiency is driving both the Welsh governments and the Scottish governments, especially because that's where most of the trees in the UK are grown, and the north of England. In the north of England, the price per acre still paid for farmland by farmers in the uplands is too high still for commercial planters to afford to buy the planting product. In Scotland and Wales, the further in the uplands, the price for planting ground for timber is very competitive with the farming market. So certainly the the English government have a, um, in the context of forestry, have huge ambitions for tree planting targets to meet environmental objectives and probably carbon objectives as well, looking at a long term basis. And sort of the supply of land in order to meet those objectives is a real issue. And I'm pretty sure that in a couple of months time, we're going to do a podcast about that report that uh, Emily has just mentioned when it comes out. Now, we'll do the Savile standout statistic in a moment, but I just want to do one thing before that, which is it, it occurs to me that you know, we, we're making a lot of, the, of, of podcasts and in most of them we're talking about forecasts for property or whatever and, and we're looking at what's going to happen in the next six months or the next year or so. This is a very different market, isn't it, Charlie? You know, we, you, it, things don't change in a, in a year in your world. They change very slowly, actually. The, the pace of change may well pick up over the next five to ten years. So looking forward five to ten years, um, I can see that happening more and more. In terms of what's actually going to happen to the market, do you know that there is more money around, I think, than ever before, perhaps in fewer people's hands, which makes the product that we sell much more affordable, but to a much more select group of people. And if you look at who's buying away from the, the commercial farming market, um, whether it's offshore or London money, or Birmingham money, or Edinburgh money. It's the private office money of very wealthy individuals looking to put a certain percentage of their wealth into a strong and stable, to use Mrs. May's language, strong and stable um, environment in, in a political climate that's still deemed by the rest of the world to be very safe. That's what's driving the market, irrespective of the income that can be earned from it. And you mentioned earlier the regulatory change, and we're certainly predicting uh, within the business that the seven-year transition phase, and except that that's different within the different devolved administrations um, around the country, um, means that more and more businesses will be looking at a five to ten-year business strategy right now. And for those that don't have a successor, for those that aren't fully committed to farming without those um, levels of subsidy in the way that they've been given at the moment, we think that this might bring more land to, to, to the market for the, the first time to really start to increase supply. And, and if you take that a stage further and you take subsidies away from, from farming, the innovation and technology and drive and research among the entrepreneurs in the farming world is second to none. And they, they will drive change as fast as anybody. So that the future going forward, I know it's doom and gloom because subsidies are disappearing. It's not the end of the world because the good will rise to the top. The best, sorry, will rise to the top. 
I could talk all day, but if we did, we wouldn't get to the Savile standout statistic, would we? So let's go for that then. Who's going to go first? Emily, why don't you go first? You've got to so your second go. You've got a, you've got a big shoe, your own big shoes to fill. Well, I failed to answer your question earlier because I was saving my statistic. Um, but this last year, 2018, the supply of um, Great Britain farmland has gone up 24%, which is quite a massive increase. But we're still actually looking at every farm within the UK being sold only on average every 200 years. Wow. <laughs> that is long term, Charlie. And that's agony for estate agents, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, going forward in a market that's meant to be tough, my, my killer stat is 61% of purchasers out of our London office this year bought with cash, no borrowings. Quite staggering. Wow. And that sounds like a pretty decent place to stop. Thank you both very much for being here. That's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. And if that isn't enough for you, then you can find the full Spotlight on the Farming Market report on the Savills website, savills.co.uk slash research, or you can find a link in the episode information of this podcast. And if you want to make sure that you don't miss a single episode of Real Estate Insights, then please subscribe to us using your usual podcast provider. You can even rate us or review us. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.